All right. Uh, if you'll please find in your copy of God's Word, Ephesians chapter 1. Now, Ephesians chapter 1, or the whole book of Ephesians, I would argue, is, a, uh, is an argument for church unity. Uh, I like to find the main themes in the books of the New Testament. Uh, so I know that Paul is going to discuss other matters in Ephesians, but I think the main theme in Ephesians is church unity. So if you would like a homework assignment, your homework assignment will be to go home and read Ephesians slowly and find out everything Paul says about church unity in that book. Thinking of church unity as the main theme, consider how each part of the book of Ephesians relates to church unity. Of course, we won't be able to go through all six chapters of Ephesians this morning. We'll highlight some particular areas, uh, but... Uh, we're going to spend a lot of time in Ephesians and a little bit more time in John chapter 17. Okay, So as we begin, let me ask you, why do you think purity of the church and unity of the church were grouped together in our one chapter this morning? It's not unique to Allison, the author of our text. Uh, purity and unity of the church are often grouped together in systematic theologies. Why do you think that might be? I would think that though the purity ensures that the truly converted are members of the church, thus they are united in Christ. Yep. So ensuring purity leads to greater unity, and ensuring unity leads to greater purity. Yep. They go hand in hand also. Good. And also, the reverse of purity and unity also work against each other. So, if your main focus is finding a pure church, and that is your main goal, whether it is in the preaching of right doctrine or the right administration of the ordinances or right church discipline. By the way, these were the three marks of the church that the reformers outlined, uh, but more have been added, as you can see, and you can read that list yourself. We'll go through it later. If your main objective is to find a more pure church, then as soon as in your community a more pure church appears... If, if we're not united, then your goal is to get to that more pure church. Instead of working for purity in our own church, as soon as you find a church with better preaching, and by better I mean more conforms to the gospel, or, and, and here's, here's where things start to get hairy, right? You find a church that you think has more, or more genuine worship or you find a church that you think has more spiritual power, or you find a church where you think that people have more personal holiness. And if these things are essential to your idea of a pure church, then as soon as you find another, a different church, you can jump ship, right? But in fact, the Bible holds together purity and unity like this, so that, yes, we're to search for more purity in our own church, but it does not give us warrant to jump ship when another more pure church might present itself. Uh, I think, well, we're, we're recording, so I'm not going to say who I think said this, but I remember a quote one time uh, that as we're searching for more purity, there could be a tendency toward error that every man's hat becomes his church. Which is to say, without unity, whatever we think is the right way to do church, all of a sudden it's all contained inside your own head. And so the Bible holds together both purity and unity of the church, and we need to work towards that this morning also. So in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, let's read verses 16 through 23 together. We start with the purity of the church. Here Paul is presenting a doctrine of the body of Christ. I do not cease to give thanks for you, 
remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You're familiar with the body metaphor for the church in the Bible. Uh, Paul here makes it explicit that when we use the body metaphor in the word, what we're talking about is the body of Christ. This is not the individual Christian, but Christians united into a fellowship, a gathering. Uh, those of us who have been united in covenant in a body of believers, uh, we are the body of Christ. Now, Christ is the head of this body. So as we're going through this passage here, uh, you might think this is some health and wealth stuff right here, right? Uh, look at what Paul is promising. Uh, Starting in verse 18 there, having your eyes, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope. All right. We got some hope here, right, that he has called you to. Uh, what is the riches, hope and riches and what else uh, of his glorious inheritance and saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? So now we have hope and riches and power. Now, we might think if, if we were more carnal minded, we might go bring it on. Right? Yeah, I want hope. I want riches. I want power. All, all these things that are being promised to us. But where are all of these things found? They are found in the crucified and raised again Christ. So all of these things power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. All right. So this is the might of God that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, we rejoice. We, we, we have this emotion related to the, the resurrection of Christ, don't we? Because we know it is the power of God. But just put yourself in the first century shoes, right? Uh, this is a, an executed man, a criminal who is executed on a Roman cross. So where are all the, the, the hope and the riches and the power to be found? In the resurrection of an executed criminal. Right. At least that, that that those are the eyes that we should see this in. So the carnal eyes of what it means to be a pure body of Christ, uh, though we have riches and hope and power, it is not riches and hope and power of this world. Rather, it is found in the resurrected Christ and it is his authority where we find uh the purity of the church in verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named. This is the Jesus that we belong to. He is the head of this body. He is our king, our ruler. He is at the top of this body. So this is the Jesus we're dealing with. He is the perfect one, the one in whom all hope and riches and power and authority are. So if he uses the metaphor of he is the head and we are the body, and he is the pure one, what does that mean? What does that say about the way the church should function? Every image of the body of Christ in the Bible should make us long for purity of the church. If we are the body, what are we the body of? We are the body of Christ. And for the glory of Christ, for the reputation of Christ, for uh, the spread of the message of Christ, we are to strive for greater purity in the body of Christ, that is, the church. So that's one metaphor for, uh, th that is one way that in Ephesians, Paul speaks of the purity of the church, not only the body of Christ, but also the bride of Christ. You know where we're going now, Ephesians chapter 5, so you probably just need to turn one page over, right? In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul teaches us about the 
the bride of Christ. Not only the body, but also the bride. In verses 25 through 27, we read, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be that she might be holy and without blemish. Okay, so here we see uh, the bride of Christ. I was hoping that there would be more married couples in the group this morning. Uh, I know a lot of you are married. It's just that your spouse isn't here. Uh, I was going to ask the husbands to say uh, how they felt when their bride appeared at the back of the church or wherever you were married and began walking towards you. Uh, is that still do doable? Um, husbands. Any husband here, how did you feel when, you're, when you saw your wife appear at the back of the church or wherever you were married and she was dressed in her wedding gown? And What did you think? I'll go first. How's that? I'll, I'll break the ice. I broke down in tears. I am not ashamed to admit it. And the maid of honor called me a crybaby after the service was over. Uh, but Chris, she was at the back of the church and she started walking down the aisle and the water work started flowing and uh, she was beautiful to me and uh, I couldn't believe that she had agreed to marry me and that she hadn't ran out the back of the church uh, 10 minutes before the service started, right? Uh, anybody, else, anybody else have any unique feelings when... And ladies, you, you may just have to learn vicariously through us this morning. Men? Anybody sensitive enough to say? Tim? Uh, it's, it's pretty overwhelming. That was a very long time ago. But I do remember it was pretty overwhelming watching it come down the aisle. The other memory that stands out in my mind is when my youngest son was married. I was standing right next to him on the platform because I did the ceremony. And... He had, he had one of those cutaway tuxes on, you know? Yeah. And he had his hands kind of right here where that tux begins to cut away. And when Aaron Durrell came through the door and started walking down the aisle, he sucked in his breath and nearly choked. <laughs> it was like, wow. Yeah. And his lips started quivering. Yeah. And he almost did what you did. <laughs> but it took his breath away. Yes. Yes. Thank you for sharing, Tim. Uh, ladies, you may just have to learn vicariously through us. Uh, it does take our breath away. When uh, on that day when we uh, are united in marriage and, and you appeared for the first time in your wedding gown and we saw you, uh, it, it was, it's beautiful to us. Now, it is that idea that... Um, God gave us that emotion in that moment to teach us about how Christ feels about his church. Okay, can you imagine you taking Christ's breath away? Can you imagine Christ weeping for joy at the sight of you and you being presented to him? And this is what he accomplishes for us. Uh, it is his love in substitutionary atonement. Right In verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. How did he give himself? Not just by example. He gave himself his life for hers. Now, we are not talking about individual Christians right now, particularly. We're talking about the church, the bride, all of us together. Christ loved us and gave himself for us. He is the one who is accomplishing sanctification for us. He is the one who is cleansing us in verse 27 there. Um, I'm sorry, in verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her uh, by the washing of water with the word. He is the one who is making us holy, right? And we can only imagine the splendor that we will see when, uh, when we are presented to Christ on that last day. We see the purity of the church in, in these couple of metaphors. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, we, we see the body of Christ. In chapter 5 of Ephesians, we see the bride of Christ. Now, we don't need to confuse. Annette, you are, you are five minutes short of having Patrick 
brag on you on your wedding day and how beautiful you were, but I'll let you listen to the recording later. I'm just kidding. I'm just teasing you. Um, usually when we think about the purity of the church, uh, it's, it's not just personal holiness that we're talking about, okay? So we know that the church is made up of many members, and all of these members uh, should be working in their own lives toward personal holiness. And you might think that if all of the members together are working towards personal holiness, then the purity of the church would be increased. And in a sense, that is true. But in another sense, there is a way that we talk about the purity of the church that doesn't necessarily focus on the individual members. It focuses on collectively how we conduct ourselves in the world. Okay, And that... That is what the marks of the church, as outlined since the Reformation and expanded upon and talked about and debated, how the marks of the church uh, show us what it means to be a pure church. Now, and it's not just that the Reformers came up with these things and said, well, we don't like the way the Roman Catholic Catholics do it, so we need to come up with marks of our own. Uh, no, actually, uh, they were working from the text of the scripture. And now let's look at uh, Ephesians chapter 4 together. Ephesians chapter 4, we're just going to look at six verses, first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4 to see it's not just personal holiness in the individual members of the church that make a church pure, but it's the way those members conduct themselves together that works toward the purity of the church. So in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 6, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What are the purifying elements of the church? Well, in verse 1, there is the calling. Right? I therefore present the word, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. The calling that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 4.1 is the calling to Christ. It is the gospel call that has came out and believed and heard among the Ephesians. The call begins the purifying process of the church. We are called out from the world and we are called together in a body of Christ. Uh, another purifying element of the Christ is the character of Christ... Um, a purifying element of the church is the character of Christ. In verse 2, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another. Where do we find humility and patience and gentleness, if not in the character of Christ himself? Uh, we know that it is uh, Jesus' character that produces humility and gentleness and patience within us, where we can bear with each other in love. Okay, so a purifying element in the church is that we can bear with one another. Do you have to bear with your brothers and sisters sometimes? I don't really like you, but I'm going to bear with you in love. Yeah, sometimes we have to do that. Sometimes the, for, for the purity of, of the church, we are called to bear with one another. We are called to put up with one another. We are called to tolerate with one another. There's more personal holiness and there is less personal holiness and sometimes less personal holiness really invades our character and it comes out and we sin against our brothers and sisters and we are called for the sake of purity to bear with each other in love humility patience all right uh, we are to be eager to maintain this bond in verse 3. We are to be eager to maintain the unity. Where does purity come from? If we are eager to maintain these things, what are we to be eager to maintain? In verse 4, the one hope that belongs to your call. In verse 5, the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism. This is where we start to see the marks of the church, okay? Paul outlines some marks of the church. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. These are things that churches must accomplish together. We must covenant together, and there is no such thing as a baptism of an individual believer not into a body of Christ. Okay? We are baptized into a body of Christ. So it is uh, imperative that the church maintain a right practice of baptism. Now, 
I am not suggesting that what Paul outlines in verse 5 here, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, is all the marks of a pure church. Okay? I think it is good and right for us to think on other passages of scriptures that might teach us what uh, the pure marks of the church are. Uh, it just happens that he outlines these three, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And all of these things are held together by the triune God in verse 6. One God, one Father, who is over all, through all, and in all. Um, the triune God is working to make the church pure. Okay. Now, let's just talk for a few minutes about the greater purity and less purity in the church. And the first thing we would want to point out is that we are not talk when we talk about more pure churches and less pure churches, we are not distinguishing between false churches and true churches. Okay? A false church is a church that does not hold to the doctrine of the gospel at all. Okay? A false church is one who uh, has abandoned uh, repentance, abandoned uh, preaching about sin and redemption, atonement, all of the elements of the gospel. Uh, the salvation doctrines that we spent the last section reviewing, uh, they have abandoned faith in Christ. Okay? They are not a true church. They are a false church. We should not be looking for more or less purity in false churches. Rather, those churches need to be brought into an understanding of the gospel and their members saved or disbanded and incorporated into true churches. Okay? There is a difference between false churches and true churches. But among true churches, you're going to find a spectrum of less purity and more purity. Not only because of personal holiness, because the individual members of the church are going to express at various points in their life. You remember our lesson on sanctification. It's an up and down road, but it has a trajectory of up toward eternity where we are being perfected in the character of Christ over the... I shouldn't use the word perfected. We are being... Uh, we, we grow in the in character of Christ until we are perfected on the last day. But not only is it personal holiness, but it is all of these other things as well that can make a church less pure or more pure. Now, a warning. Those elements that a church finds itself being more pure in tend to be those elements that we think are the essential marks of the church. So if our church is more pure in good biblical preaching, good doctrine, then we tend to put more weight on that mark of a healthy church, right? To use Mark Dever's language, we tend to put more weight on preaching because we do it well. And perhaps genuine worship is something we struggle in, so we discount it. We don't think it an element of more pure or less pure uh, church purity, right? So we say, ah, well, that, that, that's not really one of the marks that we should be aiming for. But in fact, whatever the Bible tells us the church ought to be doing together is something we should be striving toward for more purity. And as I said at the beginning of the um, lesson, well, let, let me just say, let, let me direct your attention somewhere. Um, this is optional homework. Reading Ephesians is not optional homework for you, okay? I want you to read Ephesians with a view towards church purity and church unity, okay? Uh, but optional homework is you might get a, get a hold of a copy of a book by Mark Dever called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. I was unfortunately unable to find it at the library, either in print or on their ebook. Did, did all of you follow my instructions and go get a library card? You, you really, you don't even have to go to the library. You only need to go to the library one time, get your card, you can get ebooks. But if you go to the website, 9marks.org, that is the number 9, M-A-R-K-S, dot org, and you, if you're on a desktop browser, there's a little... Um, nine marks. The marks explained. There's a little link here. If you click on that link, the marks explained. Then uh, uh, Mark Dever has done a good job of outlining nine marks that he thinks are uh, essential to a healthy church. Now, I, I'm convinced Mark would not say these are the only marks of a healthy church. These are just nine marks that the church needs to hear today. 
Things we need to be working towards. Things like preaching, biblical theology, the gospel, conversion, evangelism, membership, discipline, discipleship, leadership. Okay? Uh, optional homework is to go to the website 9marks.org. They're all in video. Listen. Maybe you don't want to read. If you click on each of those, it pops up a little two, three-minute video. You can just watch it and just start thinking about all of these marks of a healthy church that tend toward the purity of the church. Okay? Now, what's our responsibility in this? Hey, Jason. Nine Marks also has a great podcast called Pastor's Talk. And they talk about every little nuance that pops up in a church. Yeah. For example, on baptism and membership, on visiting, on the prosperity gospel, on what is the gospel, on what miserable Christians should do, on church buildings, on taking up the offering, on everything. And it's a great conversation usually between pastors of different churches yeah. and what's the biblical way to handle it, what does the Bible say about it, what's a good philosophy from scripture about it. Yeah. Uh, it's good stuff. And yeah. They don't always agree. Right. With each other. Yeah. But their podcast is great. Good. Can I throw something into it? Go ahead, Derek. So that that uh, the website that you said where they just give an overview of it, that's great. And then the there's a series called Building Healthy Churches by Nine Mark, but give each one of those marks and it's in a short book clean, more up to date. Gotcha. Yeah. So that that's a great book. But it's a little bit dated. Yeah. So when you read the chapter on like biblical theology and uh-huh. what that is, like the storyline of scripture, it's going to confuse you because that's not what he's actually talking about because that book was written 20 years ago. Yeah. But the, Are you the, calling me old? <laughs> well, we're, 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 the church I just came from, we were currently going through it. So yeah. I'm like, I'm, it's fresh in my mind. Sure. And as I read it, I was confused. Yeah. I was like, what are we talking about? Okay. And, uh, cool. But the. the um, the series, the new series that takes each one of those in a short book, book length uh, treatment, it's, uh, it's really good. Not to say that book's not good, it's, it's good, it's worth reading. So yeah. if you're, you're going to read that and read it, by all means. Yeah. But that, those up to date ones are, are, are really nice. Cool. And there's a very short one called uh, The Marks of a Healthy Church Member. It's very short and very accessible, and it might be uh, more. Uh, beneficial to you to get there really quickly. Um, I have a couple copies at home. If you want to ask me for one, I I can bring you one uh, next week. Okay, Uh, what is your responsibility towards the purity of the church, though? For example, let's just take preaching, for an example. Anybody here a pastor? We don't have any pastors here among us today, do we? Uh, What's your responsibility to maintaining church purity with regard to preaching? Well, you might be surprised to know that it is your responsibility to call biblical elders. It's your responsibility to recognize uh, those among us who are called and gifted and set them apart for the work of the ministry. And it is your responsibility to remove them if they drift from the gospel of Christ. If they begin to preach uh, things contrary to the word of God, then it is your responsibility to remove these men as elders among you. Uh, that is the one of the functions of biblical church membership. Okay, We are to set up elders, and we are to remove them if they uh, drift, from the, drift from correct doctrine. Okay, But that just leads us to a point, and I, I need to move on a little bit further. Um, is, is there any... Is there any way for us to maybe have a framework of of how to decide what's most important and what's uh, less important and what's worth dividing over and what's not worth dividing over? Albert Moeller, president of Southern Southern Seminary, has a helpful uh, framework that he calls theological triage. Anybody here a nurse, former nurse? No? Me either. I I was never called to the medical field. I, I don't do well with blood or fainting. Um, but uh, triage is if you go to the ER and you have, I don't know, a minor cut on your hand or if, 
okay, w one year I got a knife for Christmas and I was playing with my knife and I stabbed myself. And uh, it was a chisel. It was the chisels I got for Christmas. And I begged them, don't put stitches in. I, I'm not good with needles, right? Uh, but if you go to the ER and you have a little cut on your hand because you stabbed yourself with a chisel, you are not going ahead of the guy who just had a heart attack, okay? The guy who had a heart attack, he is in, in front of you in line. That's what triage means as far as ER. They're going to assess the severity of the injuries that are coming in, and the people with the most severe injuries are going first. Okay? So Albert Moeller decided that uh, it might be helpful to outline what, what would be theological triage. How could we decide what is most important and what is least important when it comes to theological issues? And he outlines first order, second order, and third order issues. And I thought I would be able to write them down, but I don't have space and I don't have the patience for it. First order issues are issues worth dividing over. First order issues are issues related to the gospel. If in our church we begin to see a, a group of people who um, perhaps starts to espouse some universalist type principles where we've abandoned the exclusivity of Christ for, uh, for an idea that uh, anybody who is uh, faithful but never really had an opportunity to hear about Christ, you know, God's going to be merciful to them. If we have some elements like that in our church, that would be a first order issue. That would be an issue where we need to have some serious conversations. We may need to exercise church discipline. But if it becomes a pervasive problem in the church that you're attending where the gospel is being abandoned, then that is a first order issue where you are permitted to separate from. They are showing themselves to be false Christians and that's part of a false church. And you have an obligation to... Uh, uh, be a member of a true church. Okay? Now, there's lots of wisdom that has to go into this. Because some people are going to call things gospel issues that you may not necessarily agree is a gospel issue. There is a lot of wisdom that has to go into this. And, uh, and we're not saying that there's a black and white list. Uh, but these are all the issues that you're permitted to separate over. No, with the help of the Holy Spirit, with working with other true Christians and trying to understand the Word of God. But there are first order issues. These are the most serious crimes that we can commit that might cause us to need to separate. But then there are second order issues. Second order issues would be issues that we would not say you're not a brother. You are not a... A, a, a member of the body of Christ universal. But we have some serious disagreements about the way the purity of the church ought to work itself out in everyday life. We have some serious disagreements, and, and the classic cases for baptism, right? The classic cases for baptism. Um, we, being in a Baptist church, believe that baptism is to be administered as a full submersion of the individual after conversion, symbolizing their death to Christ and their resurrection with him to new life. Okay? Uh, there are other true brothers who believe that baptism more corresponds to uh, what the mark of circumcision meant for uh, the Old Testament saints and so baptism ought to be administered uh, to infants to set them apart for uh, church life. But the best infant baptism proponents do not abandon the idea of conversion. They don't think that simply baptizing the child uh, sets them apart. They're, they're a Christian now. Now, they, they do have language to say that they are part of the covenant community, but they don't believe that they are necessarily Christians because they were baptized as infants. Rather, they would argue, gospel issues, that child must grow up, confess their own sins, turn in repentance toward Christ, and be converted. Those would be second order issues. These would be issues where we would say, listen, I'm not willing to call you not a brother, but in order for us, under our own convictions, to practice church purity the way we see fit, perhaps we need to separate. You, you'll have 
you, you can have your own congregation. We'll have our own congregation. And, uh, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We confess that. But for sake of our convictions with regards to a second order issue, we're going to keep ourselves separate. Third order issue uh, would be something that is a theological debate, but wouldn't necessarily uh, cause any division at all. What's the classic example of a third order issue that you can think of? The gifts. The gifts. Uh, that is a very good uh, third, or, third order issue. Um, yeah, do, you want, do you want to expand? I, I wasn't prepared to expand on that one, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, we can be in the same church, and one person can believe that uh, prophecy and miracles are still functioning today, Yeah. Uh, and the other person not necessarily believe that, um, but whoever it is, whoever it is on the outside of the more institutionalized doctrine of the church need to, to submit to that. Yeah. So no need to stand sure. up in the middle of the church and say, I have a, a word directly from God today. Sure. If you're not going to like a Wayne group church. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, another classic example would be our doctrine of last things. Right? Our doctrine of the end times. Uh, like me, you might say, I'm an all-millennialist. Some of you might say, no, I'm a premillennialist. Uh, those are... Yeah, what is the millennial? <laughs> what is the tribulation? These are third-order issues where there is absolutely no reason to disrupt the fellowship of the church over these things. Okay. Now, again, there is a lot of wisdom that has to go into uh, each of these uh, different categories. But it's helpful to have that framework. It's helpful to think, you know what, there are some serious, egregious errors that will necessitate separation. There are some that we just disagree about. We're brothers in Christ, but our disagreement under convictional church purity is such that we would have different congregations over it. And third is, if you're hung up on this, then... We need to talk more about purity and church unity, which we need to turn to now. Any, any last comments about, no last comments, but any comments about purity or theological triage questions, anything? I thought the um, distinction between the second and the third would have been more crisp. I, that's hazy in my mind because sure. on two, you can still have fellowship, but you can't really be in the same church. I yeah. get that. Yeah. But that's the same thing for three, it sounds like, because in the third order, they're still brothers and sisters, correct? Correct. But, I mean, you can't obviously be in the same church. That's going to cause chaos. I don't get the difference between two and three. Gotcha. So three would be you can be in the same church and hold differences of opinion. So if you believe that uh, uh, Christ is going to return in a secret rapture of the church, and then seven years later he's going to return uh, instituting the millennium, and then a thousand years later he's going to, uh, you know, uh, subject Satan to the pit, right? And, and you hold to that strict order. And I say, well, I think that the, the language of tribulation and millennium is actually referring to this age, but giving us particular perspectives on this age. You and I would not need to go find different churches, one that believes in pre-trib, pre-mill, and I go find a church that believes in all-mill. We can be in the same church and love each other, fellowship together, and even unitely serve Christ together. Does that help? Some. Okay. But, and, and I think there are far fewer second order issues, maybe, than we've allowed to sneak into the church. It probably depends on how you hold those things and how they affect um, what else you believe. Sure. Uh, like how, how that premillennialism affects how you read the rest of the Bible. And yeah. Just, yeah. So, if you're premillennial. Yeah. If your premillennial dispensationalism leads you to acknowledge two ways of salvation, one for the Old Testament Jews and one for New Testament saints, then that might be a first order issue. Yeah. Again, a lot of a lot of wisdom. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? All right. Uh, let's move on to the unity of the church and look at uh, John chapter 17 together. So if you could back up to John chapter 17. 
In John chapter 17, we find the high priestly prayer of Jesus. That is uh, the heading that has been traditionally assigned to this chapter. Uh, It's where Jesus is praying for first his direct apostles with him uh, towards the end of his life. And then he goes on in the second half of this prayer to pray for those who come after them, who believe in him through their word, namely the apostles' word. Um, The emphasis in this prayer is on the oneness of the saints. So in verse 11, we read, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Okay? Uh, That's some strong language. Jesus prays for his apostles, that they would be one, even as Jesus and his Father are one. Or uh, in verses 21 through 26, uh, the language gets even more uh, tight. Just start in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Why should we be one? So that the world will believe in Jesus. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. It's the glory of Christ that unites us. Verse 23. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I may known to them your name that I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Uh, this is some very strange, very strong language, and, um, and it would benefit us to go through these points uh, very slowly. Uh, but just, uh, just look at me. Uh, who is to be one? Those who are called out of the world. Who is to be one? Those that believe in Jesus because of the words of the apostles. How are they to be one? They're to be one because they're being kept in the Father's name. That is, they are being guarded from the evil one, being guarded by Christ himself. Verse 12, guarded. Verse 15, from the evil one. Uh, They are being sanctified in verses 17 through 19. How are we to stay one? Through the glory of Jesus, through the love of the Father. You see, it is the work of God to keep us one. But this is some very strong language because we look out even at Owensboro and we can find tens of, you know, I I, I might dare say hundreds of churches in Owensboro, right? Uh, We find churches everywhere in Owensboro. And this language of Jesus might rightly make us say, what is going on in our world? How could it be that as we're striving for the purity of the church, that we can look out over the American landscape and see hundreds of different churches, hundreds of different denominations, and they're really not getting along with each other. How is this possible? So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 to see what makes for disunity. So go back to Ephesians chapter 2. What makes for disunity? Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. 11 and 12 we read, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. One of the things that makes for disunity in the church is pride, arrogance, and forgetfulness. Why in the book of Ephesians does Paul remind them of what they used to be? Clearly there is an issue in the Ephesian church over disunity. It's why it's a major theme of the book. Why why Paul is calling them back to unity, back to purity that leads to unity? Because there is some disunity in them. The disunity seems to be centered around a Jew-Gentile distinction where uh, the Ephesian church looks like it's mostly made up of Gentile believers, and they have something stuck in their crawl over uh, Jewish Christians, 
Okay, And so Paul reminds them of what they once were when they were separated from Christ, when they were strangers and aliens to the covenant, where the Jewish Old Testament saints were members of the covenant, the Gentiles were apart from the covenant, so how can they look with pride and arrogance upon their now brothers and sisters in Christ? And then in verses 18, uh, 13 through 18, we see that hostility is created through human judgment. Okay, human judgment. Now, this isn't the judgment where next week, one of the tricky things about teaching these lessons on the church is how all of them play into each other. Next week, we talk about church discipline particularly. The doctrine of church discipline, how it should be practiced, how it, how it should be loving, all of those issues. Okay, we, we need to talk about church discipline. But there is, there is a godly judgment and there is a human judgment. There is a human judgment that is, uh, that is born out of hostility toward other brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is this type of hostility that results in human judgment uh, that is a cause of disunity in the church. And finally, in verses 19 through 22, uh, we could read there that there is a uh, disunity in the Ephesian church because of racism. Plain and simple, uh, there is an ethnic separation between Jews and Gentiles, and the Gentiles seem to think that the Jews are not as good as they are. And this sort of ethnic separation has no place in the church. These are just some issues that create disunity in the church. But we need to take them seriously. And we need to ask ourselves, what should we do instead? Right? If these are the issues that are creating disunity, what does it mean for the church to be unified? Well, a lot of that's going to depend. Not only are we talking about church discipline next week, but in three weeks we're talking about church government. A lot of what it means for a church to be unified is going to, is going to rely on what you think church government should look like. But here are four different categories of church unity that uh, Millard Erickson and his... Uh, theology book outlines for us. Uh, one idea of unity might just be spiritual unity. Spiritual unity might say, well, uh, we serve one Lord, we have one faith, we're all working towards one holiness, so whether you go to this church or you go to that church, uh, we're all unified in Christ. It's an idea of the universal church, and so the only real unity we need to be striving for is the spiritual unity. We need to be kind to our brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are faithful to the first order issues, and that's. And they might stop there. They might say that's as far as our unity needs to go. Okay. Well, maybe that's not as far as our unity needs to go. Uh, there's a second level, maybe mutual recognition and fellowship. This is where there are various congregations, and maybe they exist in the same town, but uh, they are willing to work together. As a matter of fact, maybe they're willing to do uh, pulpit swaps, where it might be a Presbyterian church and a Baptist church, but in order to promote church unity, uh, the Baptist minister might preach at the Presbyterian church, and the Presbyterian minister preach at the Baptist church. That would require that we recognize each other's ordination. We, would, we need to recognize each other's brother and sisterhood in Christ, where there's a mutual recognition and fellowship. Okay? Or there might be a conciliar unity. This is where we formally organize ourselves into associations of churches, uh, where we say we are of like faith and order, and so we need to associate together, and we need to pool our resources in order to further the kingdom of Christ, a conciliar unity. Uh, finally, there might be an organic unity. This is uh, maybe the most hardcore idea of church unity that there is. Organic unity says that the splits in denominations are wrong. We need to heal these schisms between us, and we need to unite the various denominations. Maybe slowly, maybe it takes a long time, maybe it, it takes a lot of compromise, but we need to unite the churches together. Now, as I said, I think that a lot of this has to do with our uh, understanding of church government. And we'll get to the, uh, to the lesson on church government. But basically, do you believe, does the Bible teach, I should say, does the Bible teach that there ought to be a hierarchical structure among many churches where they're all submitting to a single authority, uh, earthly authority, 
Or does the Bible teach that each of the churches is an independent, self-governing body that uh, has responsibility for itself? Depending on your answer to that question depends on where you might fall in this scheme of how we approach unity, how we strive for unity, not only in our own church, we talked about that extensively in purity, but how do we strive for unity amongst churches? What is the right answer? I don't know. I don't know. Um, these are things for us to think about. These are things for us to, uh, um, to struggle with together and come to conclusions. Our constitution at Heritage Baptist Church recognizes that association among churches is biblical, and therefore we state in our constitution we desire to associate with as many of like faith and order churches as we can which is why we associate with uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, and we also associate with uh, the Reformed Baptist Network. Uh, these sorts of associations we declare are biblical, and therefore we strive for them. But because we believe in independent, self-governing churches, uh, I don't think we, we move in this direction. Now, does a conversation need to be had? Certainly a conversation needs to be had. Bringing it back to the personal level, though. Yes, there needs to be unity amongst all Christians. The church universal. We need to pool our resources where we can. We need to uh, cooperate and fellowship together wherever we can. We need to strive for uh, taking the gospel to the nations together wherever we can. All of these things are true. But let's bring it back to you and me for just a second. When it comes to church unity, how are you doing on your end of the deal? Not Church Universal, but at Heritage Baptist Church. What is your opinions about being able to get up and leave a church? What would have to happen in order for you to leave this church? Are there any of these marks that are secondary or maybe even tertiary that you would say, you know what, it's a deal breaker for me? Would our pastors have to be in abject sin? That's a good reason to leave a church. Could you not like the lighting structure on the stage? Not a good reason to leave a church. Okay. Um, bring it back to a personal level. How do we strive for unity of the church? Everyone agrees that the proper administration of the ordinances is a matter of church purity. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, are you advocating unity or disunity by your presence or absence? We strive for purity in the church, and it results in unity. Our personal decisions, the way we conduct ourselves in the body of Christ, the decisions that we make, whether we're going to be together, whether we are going to pray together, whether we are going to obey the word that is preached to us, all of these things will result in the greater unity of Heritage Baptist Church. And the challenge to you and I is, how are we doing? Let's pray. Carla, would you pray for us? Father God, we just thank you that you have not left us in the dark, that you have given